Uh, as you know, we've been working through this series, It Is Finished, and, and the objective through this time is to analyze something that Jesus said in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 30. Here's what Jesus said. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, and there's such weight to that reality. While on the cross, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said to Leo, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so over the past few weeks now, we have been talking about uh, components of what, it, what Jesus finished or what Jesus accomplished. Uh, in the first week, we talked about uh, Jesus giving us a clean conscience. We find this in the book of Hebrews. And what's really important about this, again, and this is for any of you who haven't been here through this series, the important thing about this idea is um, it's one thing to, to be told there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's one thing to be told that. It's another thing altogether different to... Um, to have God do a work in you to, to wash your sinful self as well as to cleanse your conscience so that you might believe that. It's a, it's a big deal. And in that week, I talked to a lot of people about the fact that even with that cleansing of one's conscience, the struggle is whether or not we feel that to be true all the time. There are many times where we don't feel that to be true. But the scripture tells us uh, kind of a, an antidote to that or a solution to that. And that is that each and every day we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Each and every day. We forget. We, uh, we, we don't trust all the time. We, we fall short of, of leaning into and onto Jesus. And so we struggle. But God has told us that he'll make this new each and every morning and that if we will trust in him, our minds and our hearts will be renewed. So week one, we talked about a clean conscience. And then in week two, we talked about what it means to be the temple of God. We are given a very unique uh, uh, unique picture in the scripture as to who we are as Christians. We are the church, and many in today's world kind of conclude that that's some sort of organization. But uh, according to the Bible, we are the body of Christ. According to the Bible, we are the bride of Christ. According to the scriptures, we're a royal priesthood. According to the scriptures, we're also the temple that the priests do their service in, right? It's like, it's amazing. And then the scripture gives us this beautiful picture that we are uh, co-regents at some point with Christ and that we are ruling and reigning which is a restoration uh, back to the garden back to the the time when we hadn't broken the machine of God's uh, so we talked about the temple of God and I stress this idea that the temple of God in ancient literature the temple of God for us needs to be understood as the place in which heaven encounters earth heaven is meeting earth this is what God intended to do from the beginning, and this is what he does. So we had the garden language. We talked about how that is following temple construction. And so a um, couple of really important elements to this is that God creates uh, the cosmos. He creates the world. And then he plants, uh, he, he, he has Eden. He creates Eden. And then he plants a garden in the east of Eden. And so when you follow this through and you understand uh, ancient Near East literature and how temple construction was written, you see that you have the outer courts, the inner courts, and the Holy of Holies. 
And then I was talking to, to Dwayne Adams last week or the week before, and it was really a fun thing for, for me to uh, engage with him because he, was, he said, you remember this too, it's really important. Remember that Adam was not created in the garden. Adam was created outside and he was taken into. And this is the same idea that happens when we enter, man enters the Holy of Holies, right? We're not made in that place, but we do, by God's grace, by God's love, we get to enter into that. And so uh, what really is most important about that week is that as the temple of God, we are the place in which heaven meets earth. So what are we supposed to be and what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be followers of Christ. We're supposed to be people of love and people of peace and all of those things. But we're supposed to take that into the world. This is what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. This is what they failed to do. And this is what Jesus has finished and righted so that we might return to that. In that week, I also gave you a very important principle. And that was the principle of uh, understanding the scripture through the lens of interpretation versus through the lens of conveyance, of information. Uh, We're going to tackle that just a little bit more today uh, in different parts. So I just want you to have that in your brains as we go through it. In in week three, we talked about uh, what it means to be a royal priesthood. And I I gave you this really obscure uh, thing that was done called extispacy in the ancient world. And that was where... People would make sacrifices and then they would divine the will of their God by looking at the sacrifice, the the bloody mess that is the sacrifice. And the truth is that this is also true of us, even though that's a weird, crazy idea, uh, this is true of us. And that is, as a royal priesthood, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to present our bodies as what? A living sacrifice each and every day of our lives. And when the world, and they see this sacrifice, you and I living before them, and they see people who love their neighbor, love their enemy, pray for those who persecute them. When they see people who are, who are known by their love for one another, we support each other, we care for each other. When they see the inside of that sacrifice, they know the will of God. They know that our God is a God of love and compassion and restoration and forgiveness and joy. They know that. But they know that because they see us doing that. And so we looked at what it meant to be a royal priesthood. Uh, One of the most important pieces of that week was that God has told us that he has written his word on our heart. And so if he has written his word on our heart, which is what he expects, and then we're a living sacrifice, that's on full display to the world, they see God's word, they see God's will, they see God's law and all that he commands. So these are really, really important concepts. The catchphrase from that week, or that week I gave you a catchphrase, and that was that the, the fruit of our lives should, do, should reveal the root that we belong to, right? Our fruit should reveal the root. Now, it doesn't determine the root. The root is what determines the fruit, amen, right? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. But our fruit should be able to be studied and looked back on, and we should be able to see God, and we should be able to see his will. 
And then last week, we, we jumped into something that I feel uh, is important, exciting, and yet bigger than I could deliver in one week. And that is this idea that God has provided for us as Christians something better than he provided the Old Testament saints. And we asked a great question for that time, and that is, what is that something better? We concluded uh, the answer to be something along these lines, that number one, salvation is what came. Full salvation, true salvation. And it's corporate, by the way. God has saved a people out of this world. We also looked at the idea that uh, Jesus alone makes uh, presence, the presence of God or our entering the presence of God possible. And so, again, the something better for us is that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The people of the Old Testament went to a temple, went to a tabernacle, and we are that people. Amen? And so God meets with earth through us and uh, in our actions out into the world. And then I talked about the idea of him completing the story, and that's where I want to pick up today. I want to share with you what it means for, uh, for Jesus to truly complete this story. Uh, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we read this passage. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Say it with me, church. The author and perfecter of faith. Now, I want you to know that uh, sometimes we're... we're we're interpreting words and we're putting the best word we know into that space. And some translations will say the author and perfecter. Uh, some translations will say the author and the finisher of our faith. And I want you to know that this word here as perfecter or finisher is in fact the same thing that Jesus says on the cross when he says it is finished. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. And if we rewind that back to John, we realize he did perfect our faith. Now, it doesn't mean we always feel like we see it or we experience that, but he is the perfecter of our faith. He is the finisher of it all. And when you see what it is, the bigness of it, I think it will be really encouraging. So the author and perfecter of our faith, or finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him did exactly what he came to do. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down, and you've got to remember this, church, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what Jesus did when he finished what he set out to do. He sat in the place of ruling and reigning at the right hand of God where he can oversee everything. So today, what I'm going to talk about is, and it seems interesting here, but I'm going to tie this finishing piece in with a concept in the Bible known as rest. And we need to understand what rest really is according to, according to the scripture and according to an ancient mind, because I think we have, well, I know for a fact we have a wrong view. Uh, when you think uh, of rest, you most likely think of relaxation, right? I mean, that seems to make sense. It's a synonym for it. Rest and relaxation. But I don't know if you've ever done this when you take words and you try to uh, impose those words onto God, all of a sudden they don't make sense. 
God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is all-powerful. God is all of these pieces. And then we say God worked for six days and he needed to sit back on his cosmic lazy boy. Right? And it doesn't make sense to us. And actually, the world of skeptics, the world of, uh, of those who, who are anti-Christian, they look at it and they say, how strong can your supposed God be if he can't even endure? I mean, he seems human if he has to rest. And the problem with this is that we keep letting them use the word rest like relaxation. And that's not how it was used. That's not what it was actually about. John Walton writes this, he says, rest does not imply relaxation, but more like achieving equilibrium and stability. Stability, really important. God is making a place of rest for himself, a rest provided for by the ordered cosmos. Let me ask you a question. When everything at your work or at your home is in perfect order, what are you able to do? rest. But it doesn't mean you sit back like this. Ah, oh, this is great. Well, maybe some of you do. <laughs> Stop that, right? But the idea is if everything is in working order, if everything is good, what rests first in your in your all's life? Your mind. You're just like, "Oh, this is amazing." And it rests first here because you know all things are functioning in their proper order. And this is exactly what God did on the seventh day of creation. Because what we need to remember about creation is that God actually made it very good. What does that mean? God was not stepping back from his creation and going, Psh, I was surprised. I did a pretty good job at that. Right? He's not surprised. It's not very good like we see a piece of art. It is God either doing one thing, either stepping back and saying, you want to know the, de the definition of good or very good? There it is. It's either that, which I don't think is exactly what he's doing, or it is God stepping back and actually saying, it's finished. It's finished exactly the way I want it. And this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. You see, because what we see in the first six days of creation is God developing two things, the functionaries and the functions of creation. The functions of creation are actually seen in days one through three, and the functionaries, those which carry out the function, are actually found in days four through six. And interestingly enough, if you want to read the Bible through the lens of uh, conveyance of information, it's going to be terribly confusing. Because you're going to read this and you're going to have all the arguments. Do we live in a young earth? Do we live in an old earth? What way, way did God create this? Does God create this, start it, and then it evolves into something else? We're going to ask all kinds of dumb, non-essential questions to what was actually being stated here. Again, interpretation says this. When Moses, remember Moses is the person writing these first, uh, first few chapters at least primarily the one writing them. Uh, when Moses is writing this, all this stuff has long since gone by, right? Creation happened well before Moses. And he is living in a Mesopotamian world or an ancient Near East world. It was actually Abraham who lived in a kind of the Mesopotamian world, his father at least. So the idea here is that Moses is living in this world in Egypt, and he is hearing all these stories. Do you want to know what created everything? It's this God. It's that God. It's this God. It's that God. And Moses comes in, and he says, nope, it's Elohim. It's Yahweh. Because what Genesis is trying to get us to understand is who did it, 
Not how he did it, because if we go there, we're going to have problems. Let me give you another proof for why this is. In days one through three, God says, let there be light. Let me separate the expanse above from the expanse below, meaning water. And then on day three, he says, let's separate the water on the ground from the dry land. Okay? And then what does he do on four, five, and six? He goes back to days one, two, and three, doesn't he? On day four, he goes back and he says, oh yeah, the light that I said let there be, it's the sun, the moon, and the stars, just so you know. But what was their functionary responsibility? They were to govern the days and the seasons, the weeks, the months, the years. Read it for yourself. You'll see it, right? And then on day two, he separates the expanse from the bottom one. And what does he create on day five? The birds and the sea creatures. This is not coincidence, guys. This is not coincidence. He's doing something. And Moses is doing something by writing this this way. Think about light, for example. I love having this debate or argument with people because it does often turn into an argument. But the idea of God saying, let there be light. And then on day four, he says, the sun and the moon and the stars. And what do we do with it? We say, ah, but there was light on day one, and then he created the sun, moon, and the stars. That doesn't make any sense. You know that, right? People go, oh, the light was God. Did he create himself on day one? Let there be me, right? That's not what happened. Right? That's not what happened. He said, let there be light. And this account on day four is, who is the light? The sun, the moon, and the stars, and everything else. Right? Then he separates, puts the, the birds in the sky and the sea monsters in the sea. I'm still wondering why he did that. Anyway, sea monsters in the sea. And then he creates dry land, separates it. And what does he do there? Beasts of the field and you and me. Beasts of the field and you and me. Trust me, church. There is, no, there is no mistake or no accident in writing it this way, right? It's interpretation is what's happening. But this is what I want to get to. God creates all of this, functions and functionaries. He puts it all out there, and then day seven, he sits back and he says, it's doing exactly what I made it to do. And he rests. Because in the ancient Near East, to rest for a deity, to rest for a god, to rest for a ruler, meant to be enthroned, to sit down and watch as his kingdom does what it was designed to do. Did you know that that's what God did on day seven? No, because most people think he's just kicking back and he's sleeping. But he does give us the emphasis of rest because he sat back and was in control, what do you do when somebody who's leading is fully in control and they've taken care of everything? What do you do as their servant? You should rest. You should be able to kick back. This is why the scripture says that the Sabbath was actually made for you and not you for the Sabbath. God did it. God said it. And then you get to rest in it. You get to actually rest in it. Okay? So very important concepts that are giving here. J.D. Levinson says this. He says, We should not be surprised to find that the text describing the creation of the world and those describing the construction of a shrine are parallel or a temple. The temple and the world stand in an intimate and intrinsic connection. The two projects cannot ultimately be distinguished or disengaged. Each recounts how God brought about an environment in which he 
can find rest in which he can sit back and lead from his throne. Now, this is where we are we are struggling because when Jesus says that he is the author, or when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, there is in view in finishing our faith that he is walking through our life with us. We are yoked to Jesus and we are learning what it means to trust him each and every day. How many of you know that to be true? Philippians 1.6 is where we understand this, I think, to the best, when it says that he, uh, he who began a good work in you will what? He will perfect it. What does perfect mean as for last week? Bring it to completion, right? He will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you know you're not perfect yet? How many of you wish you were? Yes, you better wish you were. You're like, I'm not, and I'm happy here. Anyway, right? You, you want to be perfect? Guess what? Jesus is at work. But there's a reason Jesus is at work. Because he said it is finished on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he ascended to the right hand of God, and he took up his rest. What does that now mean? It means he's ruling it means he's setting things to right. So here's what happens. God creates the heavens and the earth, function and functionaries. He creates all of this, and then he sits back and he rests. And then what did we do? We came in and broke the machine, right? That's what we tried to do, okay? We're like, you know what we can do? We can do whatever we want, and we'll do it our way, okay? And then the world spins out of control and enter sin and death and destruction, you guys are aware that's all around, right? Okay. So sin, death, and destruction. God then, God then uh, begins to be patient with humanity and works with us over a period of time. He allows for a temple construction. In that situation, uh, we have, still have the breakdown between heaven and earth in that God now, instead of dwelling with his people, he looks on to his people as they pray. But not with you and I. With you and I, he dwells inside of us. This is a, di a distinction between the Old Testament and now what we have because we have something better, right? And so, so God creates it, we break it, and disorder arises. But disorder arises because we didn't want him on the throne. This has the, uh, this has the, um, the traces of the prodigal son story in it. It's all of this stuff, right, where we're like, we don't like you. We're going to take our inheritance and we're going to run. God's like, fine, I'll turn you over to the death and destruction that you want. And then we experience that. But when Jesus comes back to the cross, when he comes back and he dies on the cross and he says that it is finished, he is literally telling us that he is back to ruling and reigning, that it is not up to us anymore, that it is not in the devil's hands anymore, that he has control. And this is a very powerful truth. But we don't know it unless we really look through these things in a better fashion. Okay, so what does it mean for God to be uh, in control of life? Well, in the beginning of things, God set his machine working. How did he do that? He set the animals to do their job, the plants to do their job, the birds to do their job, the sea and the heavens and everything to do its job. It was functioning properly. He also set us to do our job, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Subdue it, all that stuff. He set us on this trajectory to do it. But when we broke it, things got screwed up. 
But was God out of control at that point? Mm -mm. He's still on his throne. But what is he doing? He's giving it over to you and me. He's giving it over to our depraved minds, our brokenness. This is the only, this idea is the only way to make sense of pain and suffering in this world. The skeptic, the cynic, all the people of our world say, how could a good God let all of this stuff unfold? How many of you have heard this protest? How could a good God do this? A good God is setting up his system and he allows us to make choices and we break that. Okay? And he is allowing the consequences to take effect. And here's how far he's allowing those consequences to take effect. He's even letting those consequences take effect from me to another person. If I hurt another person. Does that seem fair? No. It doesn't seem fair. But it's still what is happening in our world. Right? There's all, all kinds of brokenness. But if we don't believe that it is, uh, that it is done this way, that this, the machine is broken and that we are trying to rule and reign, if we don't understand this, we will not understand pain and suffering. We will think God has to have caused it. Because isn't he in control? Isn't he in control? Isn't he doing everything in his power? Is he just wringing his hands? Is he confused about what's going on? No, he's actually just giving it to you. Did the father truly give the inheritance to the prodigal son? He did. What did he do with it? He squandered it. He made a mess of it. Did the father lose his sovereignty over his house because the son was an idiot? No. Does God lose his sovereignty because you're an idiot? Turn to someone next to you and say, I am an idiot. You guys don't want to do that, do you? I see how it is, right? You know what, I'm, I'm hearing more, you are an idiot, Nathan. I, I don't know what's happening out here. But anyway, the idea is that we are going about our business. But what are we changing in this? What is happening? The, we're changing the ordered cosmos, the way it functioned, the way it did its thing, in perfect humming order. We've messed it all up. And when we start to understand God in his ordering system, we get that confused too. So I'm going to take a bit of a, 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 bit of a rabbit trail here on this idea, but a bit of a rabbit trail. How many of you know what a deist is? This is somebody who believes that God has created everything and then he checked out, right? God creates stuff and then he checks out. Do you know that there is a reason why ideas like this arise? Because there's a bit of truth in just about everything that we say, in what we try to create, in what we observe in the world. You see, God actually made a system in which he doesn't actually have to have touch and personal presence to make it work every time. Did you know that? How many of you read the scripture that David says, God knit me together in my mother's womb? How many of you also know God didn't knit you together in your mother's womb? He wasn't doing this, okay? He wasn't doing this. God is actually setting a system in motion and letting it spin, and it's an amazing, amazing machine. And he steps back and he lets it all unfold. And David is simply in a poetic fashion showing us a, a, an image of what he sees. God's machine shows how babies are made. 
Any kids in the room that don't know this story yet? Okay, I'll take a stab at it. Anyway, so, right? So a woman has X amount of eggs in her entire life. That's it. Men produce all the stuff they want, right? But women have, an, have a set amount. And every time these eggs come down the chute, they get impregnated or they get fertilized. And then that embeds into a uterine wall and creates a baby, okay? This, in some weird way, is God knitting you together, okay? But who does that apply to? It applies to literally every human being that's ever been created, Right? So if God is actually intimately connected with every baby, how do you account for deformity? How do you account for brokenness and all of these effects? See, you can't account for them unless you're going to blame God for them, right? He did create a system. He did create a machine, and y'all broke it. I did too, right? We broke that machine. There are still things that happen just according to order because of his mercy, but there is a brokenness in the system. There are so many things that function like this in the world. And so the deist thinks God has just checked out, but what they should rightly understand is that God made it to work. But we broke it. And it doesn't work the same now. Or it doesn't work perfectly as it used to. That is until Jesus That is until what Jesus came to accomplish and to finish. That is what until what Jesus came to do, which is to sit on the throne and prove to us that everything is going to be good if we will trust in him and we will walk after him all the days of our life. What does it say in scripture? He's going to right wrongs. It says that he's going to heal the broken, bind up the sick, right? It says that the the leaves of the tree of life, which is Jesus, by the way, the leaves of that tree are going to heal the nations. This is what God is going to do. Why? Because he's king again. He's king whether you want him to be or not. That's why the scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It doesn't matter if you like it. It's going to happen. So God has set every piece of this back together. God has taken what was formless and what was void. He gave it function. He gave it form. And he did this. At the micro level, he did it at the macro level. He set the machine in motion, and then he rested. He finished it. It was very good. Then we broke it, and then Jesus came and declares on the cross, see, I fixed it. See, I fixed it. Now you say, Nathan, that all sounds fine and good, but there's still brokenness in our world. There's still uh, the effects of sin and deformity and all of these things. How do you account for that? Because God does all of this through his people and through a process. He has always been doing it. But there's a fascinating theological idea that, that was, I'm not sure it was created by George Eldon Ladd, but he was definitely one who made it more popular, which is this concept of the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Do you know that you're saved? Do you always feel saved? Nope. Are you fully saved? Yes, but are you fully saved? (laughs) There's a a sense in which the answer is no to that question. How do I know that? How do I know that? Let's look up Hebrews chapter 3. This is such a powerful truth. 
Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14. Look at what it says. For we have become partakers of Christ. How many? Partakers of Christ. I'm a partaker of Christ. Now look at this. If. I don't like that. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until when, church? The end. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Salvation actually has the fullness of your life in view and not that moment you said yes at a Billy Graham thing. It's fine. Billy Graham's awesome. But look at our salvation. Our salvation is something that is so much bigger. There's the now, I am saved. I trust that. And that's what I have assurance in. But there's the not yet, which is I still haven't received a glorified body yet. I still haven't been adopted yet. That's what the scripture says, the adoption, the restoration of the body, right? What, what's happening? I, I haven't experienced some of these things, but I'm moving towards it. Jesus finished what he finished on the cross. He righted the machine. He said it's done. It was done. It is done. And it's still unfolding. There's still brokenness in our world, but Jesus is writing it. He gives you and I opportunity to right those wrongs or to comfort people in those wrongs all the time. He gives us the ability to forgive one another. He gives us the ability to repent. He gives us the ability to walk beside one another when we're broken. He gives us the ability to to pick up our neighbor out of the ditch they found themselves in. He has done all these things because that's how he is setting everything to rights. It's done and it's unfolding. Do you understand? Now, it's okay if this is big, right? It's okay if it's weird. But what we are called to believe is that the very God who sat on his throne on day seven is on his throne now. He's got it. He's got it. And what do we do in holding firm or standing fast to the end? What do we do? Trust that that's true. It's not my actions. It's not my holiness. I mean, he does want me to be holy. I am set apart in one sense, and I want to be set apart in every part of my life. But all I have to know is that when he says it's finished, it's finished. When he says it's done, it's done. When he says teleo, I can rest. He did it when he called the world very good. He did it again on the cross when he said, there, I fixed it. We just need to rest in that. I know that that's hard, and you may be wondering, okay, so what's the practical step of this? What, how do we walk this out in our life? Step one, believe it. Step two, let that impact your actions. Step one, believe it. Believe that that is true. And step two, let it impact your actions. If God is righting the wrong, then you be an instrument in righting the wrong. You love people. You forgive people. You die for people. You make it right. And if you do, if you do, you are proving what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. It is done. He didn't fix it. Amen.